thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. It's great to have you with me today on God, Law, and Liberty, and I think this is going to be a very interesting episode. Uh, I would love to actually to get some feedback from some of y'all. Every once in a while, I hear something, uh, but I, w- I would love to know what you think, particularly about today and maybe the last couple of weeks on apologetics. I just uh, heard from a friend the other day. We had lunch, and it's very interesting to be challenged to think about how we've always thought about defending what we believe. And the reason that, that that's important and fits under this rubric of futility is that if we don't know how to give a defense for what we believe, our lives will prove futile. We won't accomplish anything, particularly what I'm interested in as a person who works in this sphere of law, government, and policy, is changing the direction of things, changing the nature of the conversation that we're in and that we've been losing for a long, long time. Some of you who've been listening for a while may remember how I've talked about news clips from my friend Jeff Schaefer, a fellow attorney, how really beginning in the 20s with Pierce versus Society of Sisters, then Erie Railroad, versus Tompkins in 1938, the Griswold decision in 1965, Eisenstein in 1972, Roe versus Wade in 1973, Danforth case versus Missouri in 1976, just on and on and on, we have continued to lose ground to the point that now the international swimming organizations are saying, well, as long as you begin hormone therapy prior to the age 12, you can change from male to female and swim in the Olympics or whatever. And, you know, and a lot of of Republicans around the nation applauded that. But my friends, think about it. They're applauding the idea that you can go from male to female as long as you start doing it soon enough. Biblically, as a Christian, we'd say you can never do that. We don't care when you start. But yet we would applaud that as progress. And and then what it will do is it will also then put pressure on parents who believe in this idea that that we're just malleable cells that we can cut off, lop off, put on more, move around, reconfigure, reclothe, and we, voila, change from male to female or vice versa. Well, it's going to put pressure on them to start their kids sooner, which is going to put pressure on parental rights issues. And I'm just telling you, friends, I'm in the circles in which I run, Nobody that I have talked to, and I've talked to them at the highest levels down to state levels, has any idea how to defend against the right of a parent to transition their child so that the child can define and express their identity. I mean, there we've got a double whammy of not only Obergefell's liberty under the Constitution being the right to define and express your identity, but now we're going to have parental rights on top of that that aren't rooted in anything to do with real, substantive, underlying, organic rights of parents to nurture their children. That in other words, the very properties of the of the parents that produce the child, the parent now has the right to remove from the child so that they can no longer be fruitful. Now that's just wrong, okay? You've deformed what it means to be human after having been allowed to be human yourself and to produce a child. 
But anyway, I'm, I'm getting far afield here, but uh, my friends, we're living in a crazy world. And if we don't know how to speak into that world, expect the conversation to keep heading in the direction in which we're going. I was talking with some friends this week and I said, look, we're trying to pass bills to stop CRT. We're trying to pass bills to stop transgender hormone therapy among minors. We're not here in Tennessee, but in many states. And we're trying to pass bills and they just passed one in Tennessee that says, you know, a biological male can't compete against a biological female in a collegiate sporting event. And we've said that about the high school events. And I thought, you know, since 1972, beginning with the moral majority, People of a certain value system, traditionally in 1972, as Christians and, and conservative Jewish people or Orthodox Jews, whatever their brand is, that's the conservative moral wing of the Jewish faith, uh, through the Christian coalition, through all the marriage amendments in the 1990s and into the 2000s, and we've been trying to stop this, stop this, stop this, stop this, and what? Every one of those things has failed. The conversation has not changed. And, and I was saying to my friends, so what makes us think if we keep doing what we've been doing and losing since 1972, we're going to start winning? That seems to me to be futility. And, and I'm not interested in doing stuff that the track record shows is futile. You would think at some point we'd say, God, we've been doing this for 50 years now. And everything's still headed in the wrong direction. Are we doing something wrong? Now, if you remember, we took a little detour in this apologetic section to, from, from the discussion about why is it that the, the Christian church, Protestantism, has moved from an optimistic, positive eschatology to a negative one. And we're going to come back to that. But I realized we've got to get some things done first before we move on to what happened. And I think what we're covering actually today will help us begin to understand what happened. What happened with our soteriology and our eschatology that's changed everything. But today I want to close out this little mini-series on apologetics. And, and, and again, let me just say it again, why this is so important to avoiding futility, particularly when it comes to politics and government and, and law. If you start in the wrong place, you're going to wind up where you don't want to be. And that's what I was just saying. We've, we've been making certain kinds of arguments and doing certain kinds of things for 50 years now, 52 years, and nothing's changed in the direction of our culture. So, so I think we need to rethink some things. But uh, let me tell you just last week how profoundly helpful it was to me to read what I'd shared last week about the prolegomena, the first things. If you didn't listen to that episode... I'd encourage you to go back and listen, but uh, the prolegomena is simply the first things that we believe as Christians relative to the doctrines we believe, or, or what would have been called in the older days dogmatics. And, and what I shared was from this professor of prolegomena is that all human thought is circular. Now, I used to think, look at that crazy liberal his thinking is circular. Remember Matt uh, Walsh pointed that out. We talked about it last week in his video, What is a Woman? That the professor, particularly the one at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, said a woman is a person who says she's a woman. And, and, and that is circular reasoning. <laughs> and, uh, and then here's this seminary professor saying all human thought is circular. But I didn't finish, or I don't remember finishing, 
the rest of what he said, and so let me give it to you. The question is not whether you're operating in circularity. The question is whether you're operating in the right circle. And that was very, very helpful to me. In essence, that's the Bible. Think of Romans 11.36. I told a friend this week, I said, I think if you wanted to summarize the whole Bible in one scripture verse, Romans 11.36 is it. For from him and through him and to him are all things. We have to start with the proposition there is God, the God revealed in the scripture. All things come through him and, and, and pass through him, under him and under his providence, all to return back to him. And, and see, that's circular, isn't it? From God, through God, to God. But Paul ends that verse with, to him be the glory. And that's the Bible in a nutshell. It begins with God, God's in the middle, it ends with God, all things being returned back to God. When Jesus then turns the kingdom back to the Father, and now all is all in one in God, to God be the glory, Paul says. Now, this week, in a little promo for this spot, I said I was going to take a look at, at Francis Schaeffer. And if you'll keep this idea about circular reasoning in the back of your mind as I go through some thoughts about Francis Schaeffer, I think it'll be very helpful to you. Now, I, I am not one to want to take on Francis Schaeffer, and besides, Francis Schaeffer is deceased and he couldn't defend himself. So what I'm actually using today, if you'd like to get a copy of it, I'd be happy to send it to you. Just send us an email at info at factn.org. That's factn.org. And it's a letter that was written in 1969 by Westminster Seminary's uh, Professor Cornelius Van Til, a, a great thinker, to Francis Schaeffer. And he was challenging the apologetic that Schaeffer had put in his recently released book, The God Who Is There. Now, I remember that book. And uh, I, I want to say here that the reason I'm covering the letter is what... Dr. Van Til says in the letter to Dr. Schaefer goes directly to how we think, not just about ourselves, but to even the thinking of others. And that's critical to know when it comes to defending what we believe. I started writing something the other day and I said, if there's anything more awkward than joining a conversation, when people are in the middle of a conversation that's obviously very serious and, and saying something that's irrelevant, stupid. It, it's not even realizing you did it. And everybody looks at you like, who are you? Why did you come in here? And they just ignore you and move on, right? And, and so we have to understand the conversations that we're in with our neighbor. Otherwise, what we say is like two ships passing in the night and, well, that's not even responsive. And, and then we look stupid. And of course, we're sitting here thinking they look stupid. But, but to them, we look stupid. If we don't understand the conversation that's taking place in their own head, in their own understanding of the world, so that we can appropriately join into it. Now, I also want to say, I have been personally greatly helped by Dr. Schaefer's books. I remember it was probably in early 1991, maybe 1992, that I first heard 
about Francis Schaeffer and some of the things that he was saying and was hearing about guys like Immanuel Kant and, and I was like, I don't know any of this stuff. I hadn't heard any of these people. And the conversations that I was in, listening to some of these speakers in a program I was in, it was all going over my head because I didn't have any foundation. I, I didn't have any tracks, as a friend of mine said, on which those trains that were running could even run. And so I remember my wife was out of town and I, I got Dr. Schaefer's four volume series and I sat and just read it all weekend. And man, was it helpful to me because what he described as to why modern man lives a life of despair without any real meaning, just trying to entertain themselves to death while they're here or ignore the meaninglessness of their life. It was spot on and it was compelling to me and it was thinking, wow, I gotta do something with it. And, and that's when I began to think about running for office and maybe using my law degree and this, this new way of thinking and how to attack man's modern despair and meaninglessness and support Christian values that propelled me to running for office. But what Dr. Van Til does is he actually challenges not so much Dr. Schaefer's assessment that modern man lives a life of despair if he's willing to face up to it, but he challenges Schaefer's apologetic. And if you'll remember, it was Kuiper's observation in 1898 to the seminary students at Princeton that apologetics has not advanced Christianity one single step that sort of started this detour. And we looked at why Kuiper would say that. Now, I also need to say this, that the prolegomena, the starting place for Protestant theology is distinct really from Catholic theology. In the Reformation, the prolegomena, the first things, were revelation and faith. You remember perhaps the discussion, does theology begin with theology or does theology begin with something other than theology, something that precedes theology? And traditionally, in the Catholic faith, under Aquinas, the study of man and reason and nature preceded any statements about God to in essence prove the reasonableness of God and the reasonableness of revelation from which they then began to discuss dogma. So let me just give you at the start the, the thrust of what Dr. Van Til says to Schaefer. He says to Schaefer, so these are two Protestants, two uh, Reformed theologians, and he says to Schaefer, to present the God who is there, remember that's the title of Schaefer's book, to men, and to speak to historic Christianity into the 20th century climate. In other words, to join the conversation, Van Til says this requires that we make a clear-cut distinction between the thought content of the Christian and the apostate. So let me say that again. He's saying to Schaefer to present the God who is there to men and to speak to historic Christianity in the 20th century climate requires that we make a clear-cut distinction between the thought content of the Christian and the apostate. Now, you might say, well, don't Van Til and Schaefer believe fundamentally the same things about faith and revelation because they're both Christians 
and in their case they're both uh, reformed in their theology so uh, their prolegomena had they been around in the 15 and 1600s or so maybe a little before that it would have begun with revelation and faith without revelation we don't have faith faith uh, makes clear to us the revelation of God and uh, but there was a difference and here's what Dr. Van Til says he says to Schaefer, and this is a quote, when a man starts from the supposed intelligibility of himself and the world from his own experience and then after that concludes that a God exists, then this God is invariably not the God that actually exists. So he's saying to Schaefer, really, hey Francis, you've succumbed to the idea that there is something pre-theological that grounds our knowledge of God, namely the reason of man and the principles of thinking, such as the general reliability of our sense perceptions, the law of cause and effect, the, the law of the excluded middle, the law of non-contradiction. Those are the things that you rely on rather than revelation and faith to prove to the non-Christian man that it's reasonable to believe in God and God can provide an answer to your questions and it's reasonable to believe in revelation and to therefore look at the scripture. But here's what Ventil is, is saying. When you begin apart from God, you're going to come up with a God that's invariably not the God that's really there. Man's been inventing gods for a long, long time, right? Ventil goes on and says, so here's the failure of the traditional method of apologetics. It assumes I think this is important, that the unbeliever does know himself. And as the scripture says, the heart's deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? But, but Schaefer in the modern apologetic of today says, no, the believer can know himself and does know the nature of the facts and logic correctly up to a point in terms of his own principle. In other words, the predicate for his thinking is man and thinking itself. The predicate for thinking is thinking. That's circular. And, and the predicate for the Christian is God. To know God, one has to know God. Thankfully, we believe God has revealed himself, not only in his word, but in nature. And we're going to get to that in just a moment, too. But, but let, me, let me move on here. He says further, No form of natural theology has ever spoken properly of the God who is there, again using the title of Schaefer's book. None of the Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and none of the great modern philosophers like Descartes, Kant, Hegel, and Kierkegaard and others have ever spoken of the God who is there. In other words, they've come up with fanciful notions of what God is and isn't that has nothing to do with the scripture. The systems of thought of these men represent a repression of the revelation of the God who is there. Now, to be honest, friends, I went back. Uh, there's an excellent little uh, letter, I guess you could say, or statement, article, essay by Dr. Van Til on Acts chapter 17, which is the apologetic I talked about two weeks ago. But I went back and looked at it, and then I went back and looked at Romans chapter 1. <laughs> and I've always read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, as saying, see this 
the creation is there enough to give you enough revelation that that you're guilty but but that's not actually what it says it says that the revelation is clear not just as to the fact that well there must have been a god or somebody great or big or powerful or something beyond nature to have created this it says the invisible attributes of god are clearly seen well now that's a whole nother ball of wax in terms of how clear this revelation is right and, and so actually dr van Til points out to dr schaefer that dr schaefer you even use this example of the torn bible and we've got these little little smits and bits and pieces of the bible and it gives us some kind of clue and so you know, nature's kind of like that, but we really, we really can't make any sense of it until we get the Bible. And then when we get the Bible, all of a sudden the things in nature become clear and we go, oh, I see it, I see it, I see it. And Dr. Van Til says that's not, a, that's not what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Listen to his response to that illustration. If I understand this illustration of the book, then it lowers the biblical teaching with respect to revelation that comes to man through the external world and through the mannishness of man, an expression Dr. Schaefer uses a lot. Ventil continues, Does not Paul teach that all men everywhere are everywhere confronted with a clear revelation of God in the world about them and their own constitution? Do not all men have the same revelation that was given to Adam at the beginning of history? And whatever obscuration may have come about in this revelation because of sin of man, is it not still so clear as to leave man wholly without excuse for not recognizing God as their creator? The teaching of Paul is that he constantly says that men ought to observe the presence of God's operation within and about them since it is there clearly to be seen. Knowing God because of this inescapable revelation within them and about them, they hold under this revelation in order to excuse themselves for their sins. But you seem to be teaching, he's referring to Dr. Schaefer, that men since the fall have only a fragment of the revelation that God originally intended man left to them. Thus the claim of God upon man is reduced, and here's the critical part, and to that extent he may be said to have an excuse. How could man be expected to know God as his creator from a fragment of revelation? It's what I've said before, I think, in connection with Psalm 139. David says, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the lowest parts of hell or I go to the farthest start, you're already there. If there's any place in the world we could go, any place in the cosmos we could go and say, there's no evidence of God here, that is where we would run all the time and say, see, I can't be guilty. The fact is we have depreciated as Christians the revelatory character and the clarity of it in creation because we fail to appreciate the depth of the depravity of our sin and its effect on our thinking and our enmity against God that no matter how clear it is, we're going to suppress it until God does a work of faith and revelation in us. That's what Dr. Van Til is saying and fussing with Schaefer about. Now, what's interesting? I'm going to bring this up. Oh, I'm going to run out of time today. But... There's a man named Jacques Derrida, and he really is the foundational thinker, I guess you could say, particularly in our age, of the deconstruction movement that says 
words really don't have any meaning and language is not really very capable of communicating any truth about the essence of things. Now that's why, just to be honest, you get this UTK professor saying, well, a woman is a person who says she's a woman. That's why you get New Justice Brown Jackson saying, I don't know how to define a woman. And I wanna, I wanna talk about that for a moment. You see, here is what happened with the Derrida. He was actually reading Augustine. And, and in reading Augustine, he realized that Augustine was saying, if there is not a God that we can know who is personality, such that we now have a basis for our own personality, then there is no predicate, there's no foundation for knowing anything. And when Derrida read that, he said, well, that kind of God doesn't exist. There isn't anything out there. There isn't anything beyond us that could serve as a foundation or a predicate for knowing anything about what it, anything means, let alone what it means to be human. There's just nothingness. In other words, he went to the edge of the earth and looked over and he said, there's nothing there. And he went, up. Oh, there's nothing there. Let's not talk about anymore what the philosophers have been talking about. What is the essence, the true nature of a man or of a woman or a child or a marriage or a family because there's nothing there upon which to predicate it having an essence. Now, Derrida's been accused of being a relativist. and He said, I'm not saying that it's not out there. I'm just saying we can't know it not with the tools that we have available, which are reason, the laws of reasons in science. And remember, that's exactly what Kant said several hundred years ago when he said, ah, we can't really know anything about the supernatural realm. We can't assume that the tools that we use in the natural realm apply to the supernatural realm, but we can't understand nature. And, and sure enough, we can use the tools of science and the laws of reason to know you know what makes the grass grow you know uh, what makes the ball roll downhill but the scientist still can't tell you what the essence of energy is it can tell you what energy does but it can't tell you what energy is just like gravity we can't really tell you what gravity is it's ontological metaphysical essence we just know what gravity does so so in a sense what Derrida says is that we don't really know anything. We just put names on things as placeholders for this thing we can't explain. And so, really, language is not corresponding to any kind of reality. All I can say is that when this person says she's a woman, she's, she's not a man, and she's not another woman. Because there's nothing else out there with which to compare that word to and she has to give it her own meaning. And see, that's the very first sentence of Obergefell, that liberty under the Constitution is not the ability to move around, it's the ability to define and express your identity because if you can't, your life is meaningless. Your life is meaningless. And that denies you dignity as a human being. And so, as I was thinking about this, 
I thought, you know what we really should have said on the Save Women's Sports Bill? Is, hey, ladies, you wanted to deny any ontological realities and economic distinctions between persons. You wanted to level everything. Well, now you've succeeded. Leah Thomas is now a woman. And on your worldview, with nothing out there by which to objectively refer the word woman to, to say, ah, that's objectively it. I, I know what a woman is. I see that. That's a woman. Uh, you're right. He's a woman. Enjoy swimming against him. See, that was a wonderful opportunity, if we'd been thinking about these things, to put into a bill like that principles, findings, that would have made women choke on their godless denial of the distinction between men and women and in order to save their their sports agree with us that there is a difference between men and women and it's not just measured by looking at how bone structures and then assigning a value to it. See we were actually doing that as I mentioned in my little book uh, toward Christian nihilism. If you want that, send us an email. We'll send you a copy or a PDF of it. We were actually arguing their worldview to save women. And we should have said, your worldview doesn't save women. Are you interested in our worldview? But we perpetuated the worldview that all we are is matter, and with enough force and enough power, we can decide what things are and when somebody else gets more power, they'll decide what things are, and this is just the evolution and progress of things, which is exactly what the actor said about the lesbian kiss in the new Buzz Lightyear movie, that those who don't get on with the program will are idiots, and they'll, you know, they'll go the way of the dinosaurs. This is the next evolution and progress and step of man. Now, friends, I'm going to close with this thought, but if all we're going to do is defend religious liberty, and say, we want a little circle in which we can live because we don't know how to have a conversation in the circle in which the world is living. Our circle is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller until we've gone the way of the dinosaurs. Thankfully, God will not abandon his handiwork. He will not abandon his true church. But if we abandon God by not making him the beginning, the middle, and the end of all of our thinking, we will be lost. Well. Next week, we're going to pick up from here, and I hope you'll join me on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's FACTennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FACTennessee.